the midst, we have our core experts here. We have Adam Sperber, who is a residential real estate professional. We have Nima Mary, who is a real estate attorney and a rock star deal maker. He's also with a Mary Law, right? A Mary Law firm. We have Eric Anderson, who is CEO of Alexander Anderson Real Estate Group. And we have Omar Sharif, who is a real estate investor and VP of Alexander Anderson Capital Group. And of course you have me, Noelle Fryson, and I'm the director here at the Center for Real Estate Education. So we are gonna start this off with something that just happened. Triple Play 2021. Who here is gonna tell us what Triple Play is? Well, I'll start, but everybody check out Noelle's shirt. Are you a fire starter? So Triple Play is a conference that takes place every year, uh, except for last year due to due to our, our friendly virus that's floating around. Um, and it invites all of the people in the real estate business to Atlantic City. So actually, I've been in real estate for 20 years, and this is the first time that I've went there. And um, it was a great experience. We learned a lot. We got to, to meet a lot of exciting people. Uh, we had a, um, our firm had a booth there. I think the center of real estate education also had a booth there. Um, I know that, uh, Mr. Rockstar Mary's firm had, had a booth there. Yes, booth. And, um, it was, it was really cool because we got to see what the latest trends are, uh, in investing, the latest trends are in brokerages, the latest trends are in, um, tech, all kinds of really cool stuff. So we made some great relationships that will hopefully uh, we'll be able to incorporate over the next year into our brokerage and into our, our, our school. And, um, we're really excited about it. So Noelle, what was your, what was your three second flavor of, of triple play? Realtors have a really good time. I'm yeah. just going to say there were parties, there was the trade show floor. They had a money machine, like some booths, like went all out with their um, with their games and stuff that you could win. There was a money machine where you could step into the money machine and grab all the money as it blew around you. So they had TVs were being given away, um, everything, trips. It was amazing. A lot of music and realtors are great people to be with. A lot of alcohol. Um, okay. There was, there was uh, actually a big um, issue. The police were called because there was a booth that was giving away alcohol. Um, yeah. No police were called. Okay, <laughs> we were just trying to get everyone off the edge a little bit from their intense continuing education classes and lectures they're experiencing. I heard it was the most innovative marketing idea. So this they gave away fireballs, real fireballs, real fireballs. We well, gave away fireballs too, but yeah. without we gave away the candy. We gave away the fireballs that are going to help start your fire and get you involved in real estate investing. We didn't give away the fireballs that are going to make you. Crazy sleep and not make any money. We gave away the good one. I don't think anyone slept. After <laughs> time, and then Adam did the money machine. I, I did the money machine. I think uh, I think I won twenty six dollars in that. Yeah. Twenty six dollars. Oh, that was worth it. It was worth it. We have it on video too. Did you do invest that in red? What was that? You invest that on red. Uh, so yeah, we all went over, and a group of us from Alexander Anderson, we went over and invested on black actually. And had we done red, we would have won. Oh, well, we, all, we all. Put down as, as a team building experience, we all put twenty dollars down, and we all lost. Real story here: Who actually won money? No, I. No, no. I we broke even. No, no uh, I was up. That means that means I think you lost money. That's typically what people. We bet fifty dollars, and we walked away with fifty dollars. 
So uh, because you gave yeah. the money for crabs. So that's true. Yes, that's right. Where's that money? Uh, it's, you owe me that money. Uh, yeah, it's it's in their hands. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but, Best way to start it, my associate Alan and I were walking to, we're switching hotels, having different dinners with different agents. We walk by and we see roulette table and we're like, you know what? There's just a lot of red on that board. Forget it. So we threw a couple hundred bucks down. So just put it on block, figure whatever. We lose it. We lose it. Hit. And then just roll from there. So, you hit it on black. Yeah. yeah. David says, Mike always says bet on black. And there I don't like is, but he always says bet on black. Yeah, we tried that. <laughs> we didn't win. No, all of us lost. I think we lost a hundred dollars between the five of us, or something. We just each put twenty bucks down. So, what was your takeaway from the actual conference? So, besides the the good times that realtors like to party, um, the the biggest takeaway was there's so many different as, uh, avenues to get money. So, you're selling a house, you're buying a house, you're doing both. <laughs> there's companies out there that that we network with that will help you buy the new house. And in the process, help you sell, we help you sell the old house, and we'll help bridge the gap in between. That's a, isn't that what you guys do? It is, but there's no there's no bridge loan. There's nothing like that. So we help sell the old property. Um, we help them buy the new property. They float them the money for the new property, essentially, and they make it a cash offer as well. Oh, I heard about that, actually. So that's like a new thing that a bank was doing, right? They're cash offers. and they're, That was interesting. It's an I didn't get a chance to look into that, but I heard about it. I like that idea, just because then you don't have to have any home sale contingencies, uh, and it's a cash offer. So you're going to be able to compete with today's market. But aren't they offering you much lower... So, so we would sell the old property. Right. I know I'm going on a tangent here, but we would sell the old property. Um, so we would get the listing. We would sell the property for them and help them sell their old house. We would also help them buy the new house. And this company does the financing for it. Okay. It was very interesting. You talked about that. Interview. I like that. Yeah. And you said the new house can be built ground up or? Uh, I, I honestly don't know if it could be built ground up. I know it's I know for existing construction, like yeah. existing homes, but um, I, I don't know. It's more complicated, right, as a construction I'm home. sure, yeah. Okay. We should talk about that today, construction loans. Yeah, it's a good yeah. topic. Omar? Um, so my takeaway from Triple Play for the most part was um, there's a lot of different ways to get real estate done. And just when you feel as though you're comfortable with uh, financing and different vendors, I met a hard money lender that told me things I wasn't aware of. Um, so we had a great conversation with how they finance ground up construction. I always thought hard money would be too expensive for doing a big, big development. I thought hard money was for flips. Um, but he gave me some insight into how these bigger deals are financed and, and it's an option. So is the definition of hard money, is it something that went through the dryer with too much starch? <laughs> like what, explain what um, is hard money. That's a great question. So hard money is, the hard stands for hard assets. So they lend based on the assets. So a typical bank will lend based on your taxes, your personal pay stubs, et cetera. A hard money lender is looking at the hard assets that you're looking to purchase. And if, if the deal makes sense, They'll prioritize that. They'll still look at your credit score. But the main thing is to look at the, the investment itself instead of the personal finances. I thought it was when bank money was too hard to get. <laughs> no, true. Yeah. So when bank money is too hard to get, you go to a more flexible lender. In this case, that would be hard money. So you're saying it's more like soft money because it just comes out really easily? You know, that would make a lot more sense. I feel like <laughs> if someone decided, let me rename loan sharking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. What was your takeaway, Nima? From the convention? Yeah. Um, but Eric's a fun guy to go out with. I agree. <laughs> All right. Um, no, look, it was a great convention. I think we, we went there for a little bit of a different purpose. We weren't really trying to learn much. We were just trying to meet new agents. Um, and in the process, we did learn a lot. So I think the takeaway was, the takeaway actually we, we, we got from, from the event was that there's a lot of people who are unhappy with the team that they currently have, whether it's a mortgage broker, whether it's a lawyer, and that there is room for relationship building and growth across the board. 
I think a lot of people are like, well, they have their person and they don't, they don't go out there and they don't network or mingle. And because they think, okay, these people already have their teams. And we found that to be untrue. We found that everyone's always looking to meet someone new. Everyone's always looking to expand their network and try out new people and deal with new people. And I think that was pretty shocking to us how many different brokers and agents that we spoke to that were like, you know what, we could use some change because things have become stagnant, especially in today's hot market where everything's on fire. They need 110% out of their team and they're realizing, you know what, my guys are at 110% when everything's at 50%. But when it's at 100%, they're still at 50%. So what good is it? Good point. I love to meet new people. That was your takeaway? Uh, no, didn't I do my takeaway already? My takeaway. I started with the takeaway. <laughs> I started with takeaways. Yeah, that's true. My takeaway was um, if you don't have your badge, they won't let you in to the convention. It's <laughs> true. You're um, really big on the badge. No yeah. signs on where to go. But they'll tackle you. Like, <laughs> you remember those, like, those that, like, I tear something where you would tackle people around the yeah, 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 like, yeah. That's what would happen if you walk around Yeah, you need your badge. But it's just, it was kind of cool just to go and you feel like you're, you feel like you're included. So, you know, let's say you are, let's say you're, you, you are going to a place where everybody's like you. Okay. Which most people were so integrated today that you don't have a lot of always like people around you. So going to this place, it was like everybody was you. Yeah. So that was kind of fun and cool, and it was very energetic. And um, and I'm definitely going back next year. Um, I think everybody yeah. here yeah. is going. So hopefully we'll we'll see you all there. We'll have a keg next year, I think, instead of shots. <laughs> yeah, you'll be um, different. You won't be next. To quick question from Jenna, and this actually we can talk about construction loans as well. But quick question from Jenna: Is there a high percentage owed on high on hard money? Um. And I look at you because oh, I know you sure. use them. So when you say high percentage, I'm assuming you mean the rate? Yeah. I think interest rate. Interest rate. Interest rate. Yeah. Yeah. Interest rate. Yeah. So it is It is definitely higher. Um, and the word I would like to use is it's competitive. So you'll never get hard money that's as low as what a bank will give you. But they'll give you flexible terms, which may make it more worthwhile. Because hmm. you may have no option, no other option. So would you rather do a deal with a slightly higher interest or not do the deal at all? So, so there's a little more to that, right? So we represent, as a law firm, we represent some big hard money lenders, right? That's what they do. Um, we do the docs. We're part of the diligence. Your typical standard rate for hard money in today's present economy is 12 and 2. Two points, 12%, and they're one-year deals. So what's really important about hard money is it is a short-term bridge loan, essentially, right? There are alternate options. There are different um, structures. But for the most part, a traditional market hard money deal, 12% interest a year. So you have $100,000. You owe 112 at the end of the year. Two points up front. Points means percent. So two points means 2% of your loan amount. So if it's a $100,000 loan, you're talking about $2,000 in points. And that does not also include the ancillary costs that come with it. You have to pay for the legal services of the hard money company, which standard right now is about $2,500 for your docs. They charge you an application fee of typically about $800. So if you add it all up, you're really looking at, if you take in all the soft costs together, an average hard money loan will be around 16 to 17%. So you have to factor that into your deal. That's a lot. Right? Yeah. Well, to, to add, a new investor may pay, will pay 12, 12% in two points. But as you get more experiences, as you get more experience, the new rate right now is about eight, as low as 8%. That, that's a new function. I, yeah. I've seen it, but it's rare. It's it super rare. It is. And I've seen it because hard money's, money's become so cheap. Yeah. Institutional money's become so cheap that some hard money guys are having an issue. But yeah. that's like, I, I've seen maybe 1% of deals go that low. 
traditionally, I'm, I, I have yet to really see even the traditional lenders with relationships fall under 10%. So, so since it's a short-term <laughs> loan, though, if, if somebody's doing a personal rehab on their own house, instead of getting a 203 k okay. you won't get it. No, so why give it to you? We, as, as a lawyer, right, when we're doing these docs, um, and this goes into a new category, right? So hard money is typically for business loans. Why? A hard money lender is not in the business of being a bank. They're not in the business of loaning money for prolonged periods of time. They're in the business of deploying capital, right? Receiving that capital back. And a lot of times they have financial investors behind them and they're deploying investors capital to get a percentage of it, right? So the reason they won't do it is under foreclosure laws, right? If it's your own personal home and you don't pay that loan, they have to go through an entire foreclosure process. You do not have like, you know, everyone's hearing like, oh, I fought the bank. I don't have to pay my mortgage. That was like an 08 thing. That didn't really happen. If you knew it, you're lucky. But really, excuse me, on these structures, hard money won't do that. They will only do LLC loans for investment properties because the Fair Foreclosure Act, Fair Housing Act, it doesn't apply to that. And a lot of times what they do is they will take a collateral assignment of shares. What does that mean? They'll take the shares in your company and hold it in escrow. So if you default, they just take over your company. So it's not like you have a year and then you can buy time. You may get extensions, but with hard money comes hard risks. Okay. They can take your yep. in 12 months. If you don't pay them back and you don't have an extension or you don't have an out, you will lose your project. Well, right. Betty wants to know, is a private money lender better than a hard money lender? Same thing. Same. Hold on. So two things. One, you can negotiate. So there are hundreds of hard money lenders throughout the country. So what Omar mentioned before about your experience level does give you the power to negotiate, but just in general, there are some hard money lenders that have more customers than others. So, you know, whether it's 8% or 12%, if it's 8%, they're still making a ton of money. So, you know, there's room out there, but um, to answer that question, I think you should tackle yeah, that. I think, um, well, hard money rates used to be 14% and two points or even four points a couple of years ago. So the rates dropped across the, across the board. And that's why some hard money lenders will go as low as 8% just to be competitive. But like Nima mentioned, it's not common. If you have 10 plus deals and you want to maintain the relationship, I think you will find a hard money lender that'll lend at 8%. In terms of private money, it's similar in the way it's structured, but a private money is you going to friends and family, them lending you money, and it can be at any rate that you both agree on. Much less restrictions, easier access. They probably won't care about the project as long as you pay them. Whereas a hard money lender, they will be a little bit more involved than the private lender. Or read on and mess up a relationship. Exactly. That's another You don't want to make point. Thanksgiving awkward. Very good point. So a hard money lender, if you lose the money and the deal flops, the next day you can still go to dinner with them. Right. But I don't think that's the case if you if you borrow from family. So can, can we talk about how awesome this last one is? How's the restaurant space doing by Bobby Flay? Who's <laughs> that? Okay, but I know who Bobby Flay is. Right. So, Bobby, if that's actually you, thank you for getting into the estate game. Um, you have the right place. But yeah, no. Uh, How's the restaurant space doing? Yeah. Now that things are opening up. So, I have a, I have a tenant who, who runs a restaurant, and during COVID, they were in a real tough situation, but happy to report that they're back paying and uh, the rent is on time. So, restaurant industry is picking up. I think it has to, we have a lot of restaurant clients. And I, I represented um, a couple of nightclubs in the city. They got destroyed, right? Um, because their bread and butter wasn't selling food. It was alcohol. And um, Jersey, though, has had a bit of a different experience I've seen. I've seen actually restaurants make more money because they cut back their staff. They open delivery services. 
and they were pumping money out by deliveries because their overhead went down and actually their food output went up. And they were also allowed to, to deliver alcohol. Were right. they? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Had I known. Yeah. <laughs> I've gotten alcohol deliveries. Like, you from can, so you could order like a margarita and they would, it's in its own little to go Mm hmm. We'll see what happens at the time machine. That <laughs> COVID would be a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> but it, it's a good question. So uh, we actually are working on a project right now. It's a um, a large fast food chain. Uh, it's been in business at this one location for over fifty years, and um, they had a lot of issues during COVID. Um, remember, <laughs> there was a lot of money that the government threw at them. So while they had a lot of issues and everybody had issues. Some restaurants, if you had the right accountant and the right know-how to file at a grant form or whatever, you could actually get a very large chunk of money that you actually could get for free, provided you followed the guidelines. And also you could get SBA loans that had ridiculously low rates that you can take 30 years to pay off of. So there's one restaurant um, that just couldn't get their act together. And, and I think part of, part of what you have to understand is it's while you ask a question, how's the restaurant space? It's also, how is that operator? Because some operators are better than others. Some people know how to go with the flow. Some people know how to, to cut their staff and, and focus on the delivery and, and really make it out. So sometimes when you're, you're asking, or, or if you're in a situation where you are the landlord for something like that, uh, you have to really look at your operator and see, is that somebody you want to stay as a partner with? Or are they willing, or are they able to, to kind of go with the punches and make it work? Because Typically, a good entrepreneur or a good restaurateur can figure out a way to make something work. So interesting, Eric. So from a position of uh, a landlord, right? So Eric, aside from being knowledgeable in all things in his real estate, he also has real estate holdings, commercial, residential, like. Now, as a landlord, right? If you he owns everything, basically. As a landlord, picture you have a restaurant, it's COVID, and they are behind on their rent. You've got two choices, right? Get rid of them. And then get another restaurant in or keep them and work with them. Which would you choose and why? So it goes back to what I just said about the operator. If I feel that someone is giving 150%, I will bend over backwards. I will defer rent. I will abate rent. It depends on the situation. But we all have to look back because everybody looks at like the evil landlord. This I have a, an actual situation similar to this. Our bank that we had a mortgage with for this property, they still expected their payments. They didn't come to me and say, hey, you know, we know the world is tough. Um, we're going to waive six months mortgage payments. So in reality, we're still paying our mortgage. So the tenant should, in my opinion, still have to pay theirs. Um, we work it out the best that we can. And, and again, as I said, if someone is really giving 150%, I'll defer rent for a year. I'll be very flexible to work with them. If that person is sitting on their hands and just laughing and doing nothing and not even doing takeout, it's kind of hard for me to feel bad for them because I know that I'm struggling too as a landlord and I'm going out and trying to be as creative as possible to make my ends meet. So, you know, if you're all in the same uh, pool together and you're all working and paddling together, then, it, then you work, then you help. If not, then you, you have to take other alternative actions. And then also just a point too, is remember, guys, most restaurants fail, right, in their first couple of years. So if you at least have a restaurant that's been your tenant for a while and has a track record of paying rent and you know they know how to operate in appropriate times, you could be taking on a whole new risk letting a new tenant, a new restaurant in, right? Because it's like 
you're starting from scratch. So I think so much was going through people's minds who are landlords who have to think about what do we do? You know, you have to analyze so many factors. And I don't think anyone really appreciates how much a landlord has to think about what they're going to do, and what decisions they're going to make. Because like Eric said, you know, guess who the one person who didn't offer anyone a break was? Local municipalities. Nobody picked up the phone and said, hey, we're going to give you a break on the property taxes, which mm-hmm. we've increased substantially in the last decade, right? The government still looked for their big. Now, maybe the federal government bailed you out, but people here who own homes, people whose landlords didn't give them breaks. Likely, it's because your landlord has a really high property tax bill and your local politicians didn't really care too much to give anybody a break or maybe reduce 10, 15%. They, they stood there and they made their collections. So I hope everyone at the end of all this reflects back and says to themselves, you know, really what, what's happening and, you know, look at all of the different factors involved in making decisions. And there's two sides to every story. So as, as Nima said, you have the landlord side, you have the tenant side. There were a lot of opportunities for grants. Um, some landlords got grants, some tenants got grants. Some tenants refuse to get grants. So if you know that there's a grant out there and you're trying to help your tenant get it, but they're just not doing it and they're not paying you, it, it can get very frustrating. Um, so you have to just really educate yourself and, and look at both sides of it. But right. uh, from, from a legal stance, um, what at, so, so during COVID, obviously, you, you know, there was, um, you weren't allowed to evict people. You weren't allowed to do a lot of things. What, were there any, any, was there anything from a legal stance that you can do to try to recoup some of your money or recoup some... Were you not allowed to evict people or were you not allowed well, to... Well, sorry, I'm talking about people businesses. as well, but I don't know. Were you allowed were to evict the business? business? All right. So that, that's a great question, guys. And it's just an absolute mess. The answer to that is a mess. Okay. Right? Because while you technically, because, it, you know, I think the theory is it would be unconstitutional um, to tell someone they can't evict, right? They didn't say you can't evict. They just put a moratorium on processing the eviction. So you would follow it, and then the courts would just delay hearing your case until the moratorium ended, which frankly Two years is, later. yeah. But they owe you the back amount during that time period? Of course, it continues to amass. But listen, the one thing, uh, so I, I this is really interesting. I, I started a startup before this. It was called SpeedyEvict.com, right? SpeedyEvict.com? Yeah. You are Scrooge McDuck. What is this? Do you know I have a painting of Scrooge McDuck? True story. Pop out in my office. Scrooge McDuck over a Porsche. So, oh, my God. So that, that went to zero because there was no such thing of it, right? It was, it was just kind of dead. And one of the things that we would advertise is, and it was a true statistic, if people have on their, you know, their tenants are behind two plus months rent, the chance of ever receiving that money back are slim to none. So... When the moratorium happened, all these evictions rolled in, you in theory could, not for non-payment residential, you could do it for outside of non-payment. I think it was like ejectments. Mm -hmm. And on commercial properties, I believe you could. But really, courts were, in my experience, kind of against evicting people people and pushing them out because they're sitting there telling themselves, like, where are they going to go? What's going to happen? So I think everyone was kind of sensitive about that. So the laws changed. The moratorium's over. There's a massive backlog of evictions, sure. But guys, it's not like because it passed, it's over. People are going to be suing civilly for that back money. Um, there's going to be a lot of lawsuits and litigation over this. Right. We're just, it's the ripple effect is beginning is now everyone's kind of falling on their footing and they're not going to walk away from that money, right? Most tenants have passed, right. yeah, have passed these, uh, they, have, they have jobs and there's, there's six years to sue on a breach contract. So I would expect uh, this not to end anytime soon. But Nima, let me ask you, for all the tenants who owe back payment, 
what's the likelihood of the landlord ever recouping that? <laughs> Depends. Honestly, a lot of landlords are not letting it slide. And look, yeah. at the end of the day, you got lawyers. There's a bunch of lawyers out there who are finding a way to, to make a business out of this and saying, look, we'll charge you a flat rate and we'll sue. So you have a system now that's being, it's everything is always evolving. So I think they're going to get sued. I think, look, yeah. it's an insignificant amount, no, but I think as soon as the landlords get on their feet, there's nothing more that they want than to collect their lost rent. Yeah. So they're going to go back and they're going to sue you and you're going to get a judgment because if your defense was habitability or something of that nature, you're still going to probably end up paying a good portion of your rent. And then that money is going to come out of your paycheck because they're going to levy your accounts. And guys, living with the judgment is really difficult. Mm-hmm. They levy accounts. Um, they take your money straight out of it. It comes out of your paycheck. Like it really just, it, it stops your ability from really functioning when you have a judgment and someone's trying to come after you. So if you're a tenant, look for these grants. The government offered time. Think about it. And guys, if you're in this, watching these shows, if you're taking these classes because you want to be a real estate agent and you have some, uh, you buy a three-family house for yourself and you want to live in the floor, remember, it's not easy. When something like this happens and you're not getting that cash flow in and every month your utilities are due, electricity, water, taxes, you got to be able to float that or else you could lose everything. So very interesting analysis, a whole conversation. But from a, from a landlord perspective, communication is the key. Yeah. If you work with your landlord and you set up a payment schedule and you perform based on the schedule you set up, you know, landlords will take off late fees. They may knock off 10% of rent. You could, you could say, hey, if I give you a lump, if you owe 20 grand and you're like, look, I'll pay you 15 grand tomorrow, will you knock off five? Landlords do stuff like that. So really, it's just about showing showing the ability to want to succeed and to move forward. So let's do some exciting deals. Who has exciting deals? I know you have. Who's excited? You oh, I got a deal right now that what? All right, I've got a deal right now that's just going nuts, right? So uh, what kind of nuts? All right, so I, we can't we can't get too much into into details of transaction or where it is, but really, is it in New Jersey? It's in New Jersey. So I'll give you the Burton County. It's in Burton County. Are the people famous? Are the people famous? <laughs> no, they're not famous. Okay. They're not they're not famous. So here's here's the framework of it, right? So you have uh, a buyer who's coming in and there's a mortgage contingency on the house, right? Like most transactions. What's a mortgage contingency? The contract says, all right, I'm gonna pay a deposit of 10%, 20%, the balance is mortgage. Most good attorneys will put a rider in there that there's no waiver or anything else. So the mortgage will, you know, if you don't get it, you can get a termination letter and it's going to move off. Now, guys, this is where your lawyer is such an intricate part of the team. There's a broker, agent, dual agent, also lined up a house for the seller to buy. The way the timing worked is the property that was being sold should have closed a month before the deposit was due on the house they're buying. We're talking about multi-million dollar houses too. Not $10,000, $20,000 deposits, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Now the closing date for property one came and went 30 days ago. It was November 1st was when it was supposed to close. The buyer applied for not just a regular mortgage, but applied for a mortgage with a construction loan in excess of the amount in the contract. Very unique, right? Follow me here. <coughs> We're a month in. Now the home seller's like, okay, crap, what do I do? Can I say that crap? Yeah. Sure. Okay. This, sure. Is, this is the, the internet. It's the Wild West. You can say a whole lot more. Just whatever you don't say shit. 
Don't cancel me over crap. <laughs> so, all right. So now, November came and went. Now, buyer is getting frustrated, right? Buyer is getting frustrated. The attorney on the other side now is, you know, the attorneys are now fighting because we're 30 days past closing. And, you know, there's a deposit of six plus figures being held. This guy thinks that he can just send a simple letter saying that, no, there's a non-waiver of my mortgage contingency. I couldn't get a mortgage, so cancel the deal, right? Us as sellers, we're like, whoa, 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 hold on, right? So now everybody follow me here. In every contract, right, there's something called the covenant of good faith and fair dealing, right? So he's got the deposit locked up, and the other attorney's now threatening to sue. So we're all sitting here laughing at it. He's egging his client on, like, no, you can sue everybody else. And everyone else is sitting just laughing, like, talking about right it's almost nonsensical to say that you the breaching party are going to sue everybody else can you just imagine this is where this guy made a mistake because although he has a mortgage contingency he went for a mortgage in excess of what was allowed under the contract so if that happens or if you want a construction loan or if you're just saying you're going to get this mortgage but want to get more be prepared that a simple term letter won't work so we're saying to him send us a termination letter that says that you only apply for such and such, right? And you were rejected. He doesn't have it because he applied for more. And here's the worst part. In order to get the deal, to get an extension, right? To, to get more time, we get an email from a mortgage broker talking about how creditworthy his buyer is, how he can get the mortgage very easily, um, and that he's going to go for a conventional mortgage now. And it just we just need two more weeks. So sellers saying, I, I don't want to give you two more weeks, but... I'll give you two more weeks. Double your deposit, right? And make it go completely hard. Put your money where your mouth is, so to say, right? That was the one request. They're not willing to do it. And then they're telling us, no, you can't tell us that we can hold the deposit. So the deal's spiraling because the buyers have another property that they're locked into that they have to buy. It's not contingent on the sale of the first one. This guy's a month past closing. And in my opinion, personal opinion, do you know who's the person egging all this on? The lawyer for the buyer is they're sitting there to get litigation. This is again my opinion saying, No, you don't have to close, they can't keep your deposit, and we'll just sue everyone. Right? This is why people involved in a transaction are scary because if you rely on that advice, right, on, on the four corners of it, from a simple way of looking at it, there was a mortgage contingency and they didn't need it, but they didn't actually try to honor it. And guys, if you're in your classes, you're looking at a template uh, real estate contract, look at paragraph three, section D, right? In the New Jersey standard real estate form contract, I have these things memorized. It's in your book, guys, if you have the book. Paragraph three, section D. <laughs> you have it memorized, really? I don't, <laughs> for the most part. So if you look at subsection D, that talks about, C or D, I'm pretty sure it's D. It talks about specifically, um, what is mortgage contingency? And everyone amends in a rider. And everyone is just so used to, well, I amended it. And they don't read the language. I believe it's lines anywhere from 81 to 86. I think it's 83 to 86. So in a real estate form, you have lines down the sides. First page, look at those numbers. First or second page. But it's line 83 to 86 of the contract. It says that if, if the buyer doesn't engage in good faith to get the mortgage or is negligent in doing so, or acts in a, in a negative manner to obtain it, then the seller can request the deposit to be held, right? And no one takes that out of the contract. These are standard language. 
So guys, it's not as simple as it seems. And I've noticed professionally that a lot of people use this mortgage contingency as a catch-all provision. Oh, just have your mortgage broker send us a term letter that you couldn't get a mortgage and I can get out of the deal. Guys, that's, that's, like, that's like walking on thin ice. You're just hoping it doesn't crack. Because at one point, some lawyer is going to say, hold on, right? Let me see. I want to talk to your mortgage broker. They're not going to lie for you. They're going to say, no, we just, there was this, there was that, or we didn't have time to do it, right? There was an issue. If they peel that onion back and realize that you didn't apply for your mortgage on time, you didn't apply for the right mortgage, you went for some kind of radical mortgage, and it was you're the person who caused yourself not to get that mortgage, that no waiver is out the window. Because legally speaking, you have to now lose your, essentially, you could lose your deposit. That gets held in escrow until a new buyer comes and you figure out how you're going to mitigate your damages. So you're on the seller side, correct? I'm on the seller side. And so it, you're on the side of good. I think it's good. Oh, right. I think it's good. So now this is the interesting part, right? Then everyone turns around and says, well, why don't you just give more time? And you're like, we're 30 days past contract, right? And we will give you more time. We'll give you more time, but put up more money. And they're saying, no, I'm not going to put up more money. The reason you don't get more time would be because you're taking it off the market mm-hmm. and you're, as a seller, you're now prolonging what your end goal is and you're, you're kind of like attaching your wagon to this one client, not sure what's going to happen and it prevents you from doing other things. One question I have for you is obviously there's a differential between a residential scenario here and a commercial scenario. So I've never heard of a scenario in, commer- in residential where someone actually applied for more money than was on the actual contract. So I don't think it's a common thing, but how would you, this two, two parts, how would you prevent that? How would you prevent that moving forward? And then I know in the commercial realm, I've seen people be very specific with the type of loans in the contract that those people are allowed to go for. So what are your thoughts on that? Perfect, so look, residential has become specific too. In the contract, in that in paragraph three, I believe there's three boxes that get checked off. There's conventional, FHA, there's different forms of a mortgage. And the the form contract even says the term of the mortgage. Usually it's a 30-year conventional. That's standard, right? And the riders will usually say something to that effect. So commercial is now beginning to mimic uh, residential in that regard. Now to the second part of your question, which was how do you... We'll say, how do you prevent that from happening? Oh, okay. So look, that's all, you guys as agents, that's your job, right? Look, lawyers, especially real estate lawyers, it's they're just like pushing paper, right? They have so many of these deals, calendar dates, rider. They're not on top of you. Hey, did you get your, they're not your personal assistant, right? So as the agent, you're going to be talking to that mortgage broker. You should be at least talking to the mortgage broker. Hey, do you have everything you need? Do you have all the paperwork? Because everyone is looking to do less work. The mortgage broker has a ton of deals. Everyone's got a ton of stuff going on. And if you're not on top and you're not that annoying person, we've seen that that file keeps getting pushed down and down and down because human nature, right, is someone just wants to get rid of the person annoying them. So don't feel annoying. That's how you're making your, your bread, so to say, right? So you, you have to just stay on top of the mortgage broker, make sure that there's no hanky-panky. I think, I don't have proof, but I think that lawyer didn't care in this deal. Nobody really cared. Fire went through what he wanted to do. And now everything hit the pooch and everyone's like, oh, well, well what are we going to do? What pooch did do? <clears throat> right, walking right across the street. So very unfortunate. <laughs> um, but <laughs> so, so, you know, at the end of the day, that's, a, that's covered in, um, if you Google hit the pooch in the real estate dictionary, it will explain exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. And if you don't find the real estate dictionary, 
You have to go to Urban Dictionary under section Mima made it up. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, it was like, I, took, I took screw the pooch. Right, I was going like, to I, I didn't want to say that because I don't want to get censured by the, you know, how is it? The FCC. Right, I'm very no. concerned about this getting becoming massive. So that is exciting. And I'm making a note to ask you to follow up on one of our next podcasts to tell us what happens with that. To the pooch? He's dead. Not to the pooch. No. <laughs> <laughs> I had a pooch that got hit and it cost a lot of money. So it's the best sensitive topic here. Yeah. Who else has an exciting deal? It's not really exciting. Um, it's unfortunately on the other side of things right now. But this is exciting deals, but go ahead. But no, I kind of, so, so it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of stuff going on. Okay. So I probably, I just did an inspection. Um, I have a house that's under contract and uh, it's it's local. It's, it's in New Jersey and it went under contract. We did the inspection on uh, two days ago. I think it was Monday or Tuesday. And it was quite possibly the worst inspection I've ever had. And I use this inspector all the time. I, I do 15, 20, 25 deals with him a year. And he's very straightforward if it's a big deal or not. And he just looked at me and shook his head. And I, what happened was the house is on a slab, no basement. So the sewer line goes right through the slab. And either the sewer line's cracked or clogged. So it all stemmed from that issue. Was, the water heater wasn't working. But in the scheme of things, that was a small issue. Every time he flushed the toilet upstairs, the downstairs toilet would just shoot water out. Every time. So every sewer backup. We hope clog. It's well, so they, they think it was a clog. We're, we're sending a camera down, but the, now that's not really the big issue because we can fix that. You can send somebody in there, rotor rooter, to go in there and clear it out. The issue is that this has been going on for a while. So now all the walls, uh, since there's no basement for the water to go into, all the walls, the bathroom, everything at 100% moisture with this moisture meter. Everything the bathroom, the bathtub, and all around the bathtub was all soaked, all sheetrock. So that could just be because it just got wet an hour ago or, or it could have been sitting there. Yeah. And so the other side of it, he said, you know, it looks like they might've painted over mold. Okay. We, he has no, no longer, he can't tell you hundred percent cause he didn't test it, but he's like, if you look at the texture on the, like, it looks like there was mold right here. And he's like, I put my meter up and it's wet. Which side do you represent? I represent the buyer on this one. Okay. So, so what all, how are you advising your buyer? So, well, we're getting a mold remediation company in. We're getting a waterproofing company. We're going to um, send a camera down the sewer line. Just because I, I, it could just be a clock. Is it worth all that, though? Right. You just want to find another house? And then, yeah. yeah. But if the seller's going to do it. If the seller's going to, so the, the mold remediation, all that stuff, we're asking the seller to pay for. I know, but I feel as though there's going to be a problem down the, I mean. That's but it's like buying a car with a salvage title at that Exactly. Point. Yeah, sure, exactly. someone rebuilt it, exactly. but it doesn't mean it didn't get. Exactly. And, and, and that's what, you know, that's what we took. We, obviously, it's her decision, what, you know, what they want to do with the buyer's decision. But so we're also going to send, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that the sewer line is cracked because if it's in a slab and you have to replace that, you have to jackhammer the actual slab. You got yeah, the slabs are the same. Exactly. Once you, once you break so, it, so I want to send a camera down. down to make sure it's not cracked because a uh, clog is not, you know, it's, it's a big issue, but it's fixable. I think it's time to start looking back on the MLS. <laughs> what a shitty situation. I can say that, right? I can censor it. I actually don't think it's a big deal. Really? I think that um, you do your due diligence. I'm not. <laughs> if, you, if you have a buyer who actually really loves that property and is willing to, to take the time to go through it and understand it, um, there's fixes for everything. You know, I know Omar's done a ton of flip houses yeah. where he's found like really crazy mm -hmm. stuff. And um, I feel like most houses at some point have water at some sort. Yeah, some way in the basement in one of the rooms. I mean. My house itself, I had water problems when I moved in. I feel like most houses have some type of water problem at some point, whether it's from the rain or a leaky pipe or something like that. 
This is where I would legally advise him not to say that on a recording. I really hope your future homebuyers don't watch this. No, video. no, no, look. look I, I'm, a, I'm a very straightforward person. So we have some questions. Let's let's see what um, Jenna wants to know. Do you think the market's going to crash again? And uh, Lucas wants to know how do you feel about uh, foreclosure deals? I love foreclosure deals. Oh, we're eating a lot. Yeah. So, Lucas, foreclosure deals are great. Um, we have to keep in mind, you have to understand which which cycle of the market we're in. Uh -huh. A foreclosure deal today is definitely not even half as enticing as it was, I'd say, 2013. Um, so foreclosures have a lot of things attached to them. And if you understand how to get the right deal for the right price, it's a great deal. Um, but it all comes down to the price and how you obtain it. I don't like foreclosure deals. You don't? No. Why not? I like what you said about it being 2013 because those yeah. are real deals. Yeah. Look, the bank wants as much money as possible. People think they hear the word foreclosure and they're like, oh, the bank's going to give it cheap. Yeah. Uh -huh. The banks have regulations where they have systems that are designed to force the market to lift the price to be market. So most foreclosure deals today have to be listed on the MLS, right. which automatically drives it to market price. Right. Mm -hmm. just, it's, when I, when you, and you said this, it depends on what side of the market you're on. When you have a hot market, people will bid. And <laughs> just because you have foreclosure doesn't mean the bank takes less. They just bid up. So yeah. they'll take the highest bidder. But here's the problem. The bank doesn't want to do any work to the house. Mm -hmm. So if you bid up that house on a foreclosure and you ask for credits, repairs, you've got, you know, a sewage pipe, the bank is going to say no. Yeah. Because they'll just, they, they don't, they're not in the business of doing repairs. Mm -hmm. They'd rather give it to another offer, right, to get it out. Right. And then you have to deal with getting the mortgage on the property and lending banks don't always love foreclosure purchases because of the time constraints, right? You have to sign bank contracts with bank riders. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have tight deadlines. You don't have the flexibility to get extensions. Mm -hmm. So in today's market, like you said, there's two sides. From a lawyer standpoint and an investor, if I see a foreclosure and I see that the bank has it, it hasn't hit the MLS, love it. The moment it touches the MLS, right. no right. interest. Yeah. You will, the new foreclosure is buying bank notes. You buy the note. Then you can buy your own foreclosure, and that's when you'll get a deal, depending on the sale price. But that's another conversation. Like we're getting deep yeah. into that. But yeah, I don't love foreclosures today. In two years from now, I will love foreclosures. Yeah, but not today. When the cycle hits again. But also, there's a big opportunity in pre foreclosures, and when most people say foreclosures, they mean pre foreclosures because you the deal, the purpose of it is to get the deal before it gets foreclosed on. Correct. Um, once it gets foreclosed on, like Nima mentioned, you go through the whole cycle of regulations, banks taking it back and relisting it. But if you can make a deal with the seller before that, that's where the uh, better deals would be. So I'm going to kind of take a stance in the middle. <laughs> Anything that has warts on it or has issues or there's trouble with financing or there's a troubled property, that's where you make your money. Right. So if you know your market, Okay, and you understand what it is you're looking at, then hell, I say go for it. And you just figure out and you, you negotiate your best deal and you put the time and effort in because I've had things that I've worked two or three years on and then I actually got them and it, I made tons of money on it because other people didn't want to put in the work or they were concerned about it being bid up too high. It's all about knowing what you're doing in that market. Now, if you don't know what you're doing in that market, then yeah, everything Nima said, it's like you're going to be bit up and all that stuff. Absolutely. But if you have an end game, like for instance, if you're buying a house that's in foreclosure that happens to be next to a hospital, okay, and you are 
friends with someone who's friends with the CEO of that hospital and you know they're expanding. And you're lucky enough to find out about that foreclosure. And even though it gets bid up, you know about it before the hospital does, you've just made yourself a flip. So even if you paid an extra 10%, you may be able to flip it to the hospital for 20 or 30% more than what you just paid. So there's situations for everything. Um, I'm a big supporter of going after it, trying to figure it out, asking the questions and, and trying to accomplish it. But, you know, there's plenty of advisors out there. Don't be afraid to ask questions um, as far as the area, as far as the neighbors, uh, as far as money. Like there's so many people you can ask and read and learn about, um, but definitely got to try it. If you don't try it, you're never going to get anywhere. And guys, that's, that's the difference between a seasoned investor's advice and someone giving advice to new investors. Like what I'm telling you guys is from the perspective of people who are taking this class are new to the game. The stuff Eric's talking about is like, you're a seasoned investor, you have the capital, um, you can wait on these deals and you can hold these deals, right? Because you see the value add in the future. And that's phenomenal. If you guys ever get to that position, then yeah, this is the way you need to think because you want your money not to make you money today, but you're thinking about 10, 15 years down the line about the significant jump in return. You know, everything has a different price and it's something's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. So someone may have a greater value. Something may have a greater value to someone because they see a different long-term value in it as opposed to someone who's looking for a quick buck or a quick market, you know, sub-market purchase. So what Eric's saying is really, really in-depth and educational stuff that hopefully in future classes we'll get more into on these analyses. Well, Lucas wants to know, and I think this is a common a common thought that you can't see the inside of a foreclosed house until you buy it. You have to buy it inside unseen. It depends. That's what I've always thought. I don't know. No, it depends. So, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't deal with banks directly, okay. but it really depends. A lot of, a lot of properties on the MLS, you can see, okay. it says right on the MLS that they are foreclosure, they're bank owned property. You can see them. Um, sometimes if now, you know, from the legal aspect, I guess, technically sometimes if there's a tenant there and they're in the process of maybe getting rid of the person that we're not tenant, uh, the owner's still there and they're trying to get rid of them or something like that. You sometimes, yeah, sometimes you can't get access. You can't even walk the property. You yeah. have to do it from the street. And there are auctions. You're there are auctions if you're doing like um, a municipality. Like I think the city of Newark does auctions where they have tons of properties that are just, maybe they're not safe to be in because they don't have COs. Those are scenarios where you can't legally get access or get inside the property. So that could be something that you're referring to. But just to touch on, on your comment about flood, um, just a pet peeve of mine, if there's, if, if, if I have a flood zone or if I'm in a flood area or anything with flood, unless it's like 20 acres and it's like the back one acre and my house is in the front, I don't touch anything with flood. Um, me personally, because you, that's the one thing you can't change. You know, I had a house once and, uh, not once, but I had, a, I had a house, um, that had a, it was on a hill and just the drainage and, you know, we had a nice hurricane came down and it was just like. That water, if that water's coming from a storm or from a river or whatever, you just, unless you're like, you know, Superman and you have a good breath that you can blow the water away, there's nothing you can do. It's just going to keep coming. So like Moses and Carter. Yeah, Moses and Carter <laughs> water. So like, I just stay away from that. I don't touch floods. Yeah. I, I generally, when, when I when I look for buyers on the residential end, one of the first things I do is I, I factor out flood properties. But, but I'll say, I'm, I'm on the same page as far as flood insurance and flood properties go. But one of my biggest deals ever, my best deals have been in a flood, flood zoned property. Is that now? Why is that? Is it a property um, you bought and sold? Yeah. Is that investors and buyers today aren't smart enough to realize that they're gonna get white? I've just noticed that yeah. they don't care anymore. Yeah. Easements, nobody cares anymore. Yeah. So this property completely got flooded. I 
thing, Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. And the entire block, it was in the news. This specific property was in the news and the homeowner was crying. Um, but what happened is we were, we were in the foreclosure crisis at the time. The, and if you add the foreclosure crisis plus the flood damage and it's a flood area, the bank gave it to me at a price that was pennies on a dollar. I'll never see that price again. And I turned around and I was able to flip it to someone for a profit that I didn't see in any other deal. Can, but, can I tell sorry. you guys something fun I'm getting involved in now? No. <laughs> see you next week, everyone. <laughs> Buying landlocked properties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have so, one for you. Done? I've been looking at Vermont and I'm looking to buy landlocked properties okay. because there's no such thing. What's a landlocked property? Um, I don't know what that is. So a property that can't get access no. to it because it's locked in by other parcels of land. Oh, okay. Jail. Right? And then all the neighbors say, well, we're not going to give you access. We're not giving you an easement. Okay. But they don't realize that as a matter of law, everyone should have access or right to their property. Okay. So while most people would shut away from it, I'm looking at 50, 100 acres, almost for fun, right, with ridiculously low offers. And then I'm just going to sue all the neighbors and, you know, get my easement. You can do that if you're a lawyer. You're like, I'm just going to go in there and sue everyone for fun. All of you run out of confrontation for the week. Create your own. You can just use your helicopter, too. I'm not even kidding. In like 10 years, I heard these as drone taxis. Like, we'll just drop you right on it anyway, but, um, and I don't have a helicopter. Eric lets me borrow his every once in a while, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, so. Is there a way to find out if there yeah. um, are flood markets, like, which places have floods? You, wanna, you can, yeah, sorry, you can, or, go, no, you can go, so, if, on the MLS, it shows you, and we have a tool that we can look at as realtors. Okay. But if you go to, um, if you just look for FEMA flood maps, you type in the address, and it'll show you right there. It pulls up the live map. There you go, Shanice. Guys, go old school. Get in your car, drive around as soon as it starts torrentially raining. <laughs> that works too. When you're flooded, you're flooded. Your car stuck there. Everything around you is a good option. But notice, Omar didn't say that he bought that property to keep. He bought it to to sell to some, someone else. Yes. Yeah, that person, no, that person plans to live there. So it was a unique property. There was a ranch that you won't find in that town with a beautiful backyard. Um, and it was worth it was worth the bet. And then, and then, hold on, don't say there. don't say poor don't say poor baby because yeah, if he bought that at a real deep discount, he probably sold it Definitely. at a deep, at a deep discount. discount. So that person was able to get into a house that they couldn't normally get into. Yeah. Yes, there's okay. that risk, but they're going to buy flood insurance. Your flood insurance, it's just more becomes you, you have to go through the heartache of okay. And guys, you need sense. you need flood insurance. So we have a couple of investment properties which are in a flood zone, which usually you know we're adamantly against, but we've held these for over 30, 40 years, so we just don't get rid of them. Every time it floods, right, same thing happens. Boiler, hot water, heater, everything that's in your basement, even if it doesn't get to the first floor, once your basement floods, all your utilities flood. Mm. And there's nothing, how are you going to heat your house if your boiler's rusted out? Because it was sitting in sewage water for, you know, a couple of days. And when it floods, it floods. You know what they said, you know? When it rains, it pours. Yeah. That's yeah. gotta that's gotta be in that town that we talked about last time where you need the boat to drive around. The salary doesn't flood. But so we have enough for a nightmare story or two. Anyone have a quick nightmare story? Um I already gave mine. Those are nightmares. Do you have a nightmare? No, not, not since last the last podcast, but um our nightmare right now is really <clears throat> I would say getting this development started. Eric and I are working on this ground up 24 unit and uh just piece by piece. So not a nightmare, but we're pushing forward with it. I got, an, I got another nightmare story. Should I save it for next time? Save it for next time because we also have to do our tip of the week. Yeah, this can I, can I just ask you, so so with building prices where they are right now, right? Obviously, yeah. they're like incredibly high compared to what they were, what, a year ago? But how is that affecting things on the ground? Are you waiting? Are you delaying things to wait till the price comes down? Or are you going to keep moving forward? Um, so, so lumber, 
was at a ridiculous price a couple of months ago. That thankfully came down. But right now we're just taking it piece by piece to get the foundation started. And then we, have, well, we plan to put a contract with our builder where if there's any price reductions as we start building, that they have to account for that at some point. Got it. So, so that's how you protect yeah. yourself there. Otherwise, you can't just wait it out. We don't know I how think, long it's going to I think why Omar classified it as a nightmare was because he is so excited to get it going <laughs> that it's in his nightmares. Let's get this done. Let's get this yeah. done. So, yeah. But that's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, and also because in real estate, things don't move as fast as you want them to move. That's mm. my biggest pet peeve. I'm going to go 100 miles an hour, but things take time. Or waiting and, and thinking that your permits are getting processed and realizing you need to add escrow money and you're like, yeah. We yeah. just lost two weeks because we didn't know we needed that escrow money, but just all good stuff. Yeah. There was a good question uh, a little bit higher that asked, uh, getting into it, should I do residential or commercial? Well, okay. Should they do should resident? You want to work with me? Do right, residential. Residential, <laughs> residential experts. Should they do residential or commercial? No, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it really depends on you. And, and, you know, I don't do as much commercial. I do pretty much all residential. Um, and it's because I found that I've been more successful in residential. You, ha you know, I have a lot of deals going on at any time. Um, but if you're dealing with emotions, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with, you know, nine o'clock at night, phone calls on a Saturday evening or whatever it is, because you're trying to figure out logistics and things like that. So it's a different animal than going into the commercial world. Um, you know, you can speak more to the commercial side of it. I like residential because it's, you know, there's also the, the, the fun side of it that you're taking a family and you're putting them in their forever home. So I may send him holiday cards. I just, I just got one yesterday. You, you don't want it to be the forever home because you're going to call them five years and convince them that they have a new home. The forever home until they have another kid. Or yeah. they buy an investment property. Yeah. Or they want a commercial yeah. property. Yeah. Hopefully it's Residential <laughs> or commercial? Depends. You want to make money today or tomorrow? Today residential is hot. Tomorrow yeah. commercial is going to be hot. Yeah. Residential falls back. You just got to decide sitting here today, what do you want? And residential always is faster money. Right. Um, because we talked about this last time. A lot of commercial deals are done internally. They're seasoned investors. The buyers know what they want. They know what they're looking for. Deals are a lot off market. Um, there's a lot more rentals in the commercial space than there are sales, I think. Uh, it just depends. Do you want that money today? Residential will move. It's quicker. It's higher volume. Commercial, you'll make more on the transactions, but they're far or fewer in between. And it's a much smaller community of people that you have to try to penetrate and build your network in. I think you should. Try both, just like you should try every food that's out there. And then you figure out what your niche is and what your flavor is. There, You can make either one tremendously successful. Uh, there's, I think commercial has more money in it than residential. Um, and there's less competition. So if you really know your game and you can present well, you can, you can kill it. I think uh, residential for sure. Uh, but to echo what Eric said, do commercial while you do residential. But when you start in real estate, it's not commercial or residential. It's how are you getting your leads? And for most people, your leads will come from your internal sphere of influence. So unless you know a lot of business contacts or people in the commercial space, it'll take a lot longer to get that started than it would to get residential started. All right. We're almost done. So we're going to do a quick tip. I want everyone to give their tip of the week, something that's going to get everyone going for the next week. Go ahead. Tip. My tip is uh, wake up early, plan out your day, because that seems to be working well for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, follow up and follow through. Mm. Watch this program every week. Yeah, yeah I like that one. Uh, join Alexander Anderson Real Estate Group. Uh, it's going to be no. It's going to be along the lines of what Eric said. It's going to be follow up. That's kind of the biggest thing. Just, just follow up, follow up, follow up. Don't be afraid to be a little bit aggressive, and just just make sure you're staying in touch with them. 
My tip is to go to Triple Play uh, next year, just because it's a great way to network. It's a great way to build your network and you will see us there. So you can come and say hi. We had a lot of people stop by the booth and we had a ton of students who told me all about what they were doing now. So that was great for me. Okay. Yeah. yeah, just remember, have fun. Whatever you do in life, you need to have fun. You need to own it, you need to take responsibility, and um, you need to have fun. And uh, if you visualize it, you can make it happen. So, happy holidays. Happy, happy holidays. holidays. Yes. yes, awesome. Awesome. We'll see you next week. And, uh, yeah, are you in the mix? So, we'll see you next week to get you in that mix. Take Bye. Care. Bye. Bye.